It's good to be here and worship together yet again. Well, what I'd like to do with you this morning is to do two things. I would like to encourage you uh, from God's Word, and then I'd also like to explain a little of the mission that you support, uh, Capital Commission, while I'm seeking to encourage you from God's Word. So, so Capital Commission is a, it's a mission organization. We are dedicated to taking the Great Commission to political peoples in our capital communities across our nation. So we're currently in 26 states. We've even been able to uh, have a little bit of uh, international outreach in Latin America and even to have United Nations uh, invite us for <coughs> ministry there. Uh, so we're in 26 states and like to see God add some more, bring some more. Uh, eventually it'll be in, in all 50. I've been doing this for 13 years now. Uh, serving as the Georgia State Minister for, for Capital Commission, and never could have imagined when I first started, and we were living in the Savannah area, and telling my wife, I'm headed to the Capitol, and she wanted to know, well, who are you going to meet? And I said, I have no idea, but uh, that's where the ministry is, so just pray that God will open some doors, and he, and he did, and got to meet with the <clears throat> chair of one of the most powerful committees uh, at that time, who just gave me his endorsement, understood uh, immediately what, what uh, was seeking to accomplish, and uh, so from there, the, the ministry has just grown in a way I could have never foreseen to the point that the, uh, the Senate uh, was so appreciative of this ministry and wanting to protect me and the, and the ministry said, we, we want to make you the official honorary Senate chaplain. And uh, so that way that uh, if leadership changes, things change here at the State House, you can still do the, the ministry that God has called you to do. So we were hoping the House would follow suit, but uh, had a little difficulty there. Uh, Seems that my life verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 9. Wide open door for effective ministry, but many adversaries. And uh, this time it was just a few adversaries, but, uh, but nevertheless. So, so, so does God care about government? Does God care about our political leaders? Well, that's what I, I like to answer from Scripture, that God does indeed care very much for our politicians. In, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So the world includes you and me, includes our political leaders also. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says he came to seek and to save those who were lost. That would include you and me. That would include our governing leaders. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So the us, the world, the whosoever, that includes you and me. includes all of us here this morning, but it also includes our political leaders. So that's what I want to answer this morning. Is there a biblical basis for calling to minister to governing leaders? Is there a biblical basis for calling for ministering to state capitals and, and even to our United States Congress? So I'm just going to share various aspects of Scripture that provide a, a best initial understanding of a mission's emphasis. It's consistent all throughout the pages of Scripture. Let's begin with 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 1 through 4 we'll read. 1 Timothy 2 and <clears throat> verse 1, it says there, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, nor that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So the Bible is here urging us, all God's people, we pray evangelistically. 
Not only for all people, it says, but pray specifically for who? For kings and all who are in authority. Well, obviously in America, we don't, we don't have kings. We have a president, vice president, Congress. We have state representatives, senators. We have constitutional officers, all sorts of elected officials. These are the individuals for which we are to pray. And, and Scripture heightens the command when it says, first of all, First of all, to indicate priority, not, not first in the list, do this first and second and third, but do this first of all as a matter of priority. So prior to ever getting upset at our governing leaders and, and, and putting a, a Facebook rant or expressing your rage with family or friends, you're to do what? You and I are to be praying evangelistically for our governing leaders that they could have knowledge of the truth. So this is not some kind of afterthought in the mind of God. This concern for governing leaders, it's an emphasis that's evident throughout the Apostle Paul's ministry, something that began in his Damascus Road conversion experience. So it tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, you turn there, Acts 9 and verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to him, uh, Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, the sons of Israel. So here, the, the very beginning of Saul's calling, the Lord revealed that he would be his chosen instrument, bearing his name before Gentiles and kings, the sons of Israel. So, so kings, political types, were one of the three people groups that God had called Saul to evangelize and disciple. A lot of cities in the Roman Empire. You ever wonder, you know, how did Paul choose? How did he decide which cities to, to visit when there were so many? So many who had not heard the gospel of God's grace received by faith in Jesus Christ. So how do you decide where to go, where to travel next? Well, certainly a lot of factors can be considered, but one of those was the presence of political leaders. And so that's why the vast majority of cities that Paul chose to visit, this resulted from his Acts chapter 9, verse 15, calling. They were capital cities. A Saul who later became Paul, he began his ministry in Damascus. That was the provincial capital of Syria. And then from there, he went to Jerusalem, which you know to be the national capital of Israel. A Saul was known as also being of Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia. And then later, as the church expanded amongst Gentiles, there was a church in Antioch, the capital of Syria. The first missionary journey began in Salamis. That was the largest city of Cyprus. That was the hometown of one of the members of the mission team, Barnabas. But from Salamis, the missions team journeyed to the capital of the island, Paphos. So you can see all, all, all throughout the book of Acts, 15 of the 19 cities the apostle Paul visited, they were capital cities. Only exception was due to persecution. But the except, exception proves the rule. If, I, if he was going to reach kings, if he was going to reach political types, well, where do you expect to find them? You've got to go to capital cities. And so that was his focus. That's where he would go. First and foremost was go to capital cities. So he ministered to Jews and Gentiles. We know that. But it's important. Don't overlook the fact that the Apostle Paul, he's also called to a missionary work of persuading government types, political people groups, to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Well, in that regard, if we consider the book of Acts, of the 13 individual conversions recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, seven are politically related people. So you can see again in the book of Acts that emphasis upon reaching people that's evident all throughout the 28-chapter narrative. Now, do you ever wonder, why did Paul, why did he change his name from Saul to Paul? Well, his first recorded convert in Scripture is given to us in Acts chapter 13. His first recorded convert in Scripture is a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. And so after that, Saul took his name. That's where he became known as Paul. So apparently the conversion of this individual, this, this is governor, Sergius Paulus, this, this was a momentous occasion in the life of Saul and the mission team. And so here he is. He, he, he had been obeying his capital commissioning. He won his first king. So Saul then adopted the name Paul for the first political person he won to Christ and then was known by that name for the remainder of his ministry. Many of the church fathers agree, one of which is, is, is Cyprian, who read around AD 250, and he said, St. Paul borrowed his name, his Roman name, from Sergius Paulus. And then many other church fathers agreed and said the same thing. That's why he chose, switched his name from Saul to Paul, was his first recorded convert. Now, if you're familiar with the, the book of Acts, you know in the very first chapter, Luke wrote for who? He wrote for a specific individual, Theophilus. And Luke referenced him as most excellent. Now, that wasn't flattery or anything like that. That was, that was a title. That was a title, an official title, used to address governors. So it's quite possible that Luke, he's writing not only the, the, the Acts account, but his gospel, he's writing for the purpose of persuading a government leader to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that make sense? Why over one half of the individual conversion accounts in the book of Acts, it's politically related people. So Luke's purpose could be either to relate to Theophilus, look, other government leaders are coming to faith in Christ, or he's illustrating the fulfillment of Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Paul's call, if, if not doing both. But Paul's Acts chapter 9, verse 15 calling, that just gives great insight, even as to why he desired to visit Rome, even to travel as far as Spain. Because if he would travel to Spain, then he could persuade the man, Seneca, the very man who trained the emperors, he could reach him with the truth of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, in Acts 23 and verse 11, here's where God revealed to Paul that he must testify of him in Rome. It says, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also at Rome. So obviously we know the apostle Paul, he wanted to have fellowship with the church at Rome. But he had at least one other reason for wanting to make that journey to Rome and then ultimately to Spain, and that was evangelism. So if he's going to be obedient to his capital commissioning, then Paul was even compelled. He needed to take the gospel to Caesar, who was the, the, the king of the time. Now, in the book of Philippians, in the very first chapter, Paul can write, greet those in the praetorian guard. That would be like saying, greet the, 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 the security agents. So he's getting close, but then as he concludes his letter to the Philippians, he says in chapter 4, verse 22, he says, all the saints greet you. Especially who? Those of Caesar's household. So he's getting closer and closer. I think that's one of the reasons why he writes 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, Paul believes in the sovereignty of God, but he recognizes that the church needs to have this partnership with him if God's will is going to be accomplished. So just like Jason said, 
how, how the, the tithes and offerings. Allow your pastors, your ministers to serve and to send out missions. I mean, I can't do what I do without churches partnering with us financially. And we thank you that you, that you do that. But we also need you praying. Be praying for this ministry. Pray that God would, would bless it. I, I really, that's why Paul is writing there in 1 Timothy 2. If this is going to happen, the church has got to have this partnership. They've got to be praying along with them. So that's why he says, as a matter of first priority, be praying for this to occur. We have over 500 Bible studies during the legislative session. They go to every legislative office. About half of that right now during the present legislative interim as many of our representatives and senators have now returned to their, their home districts where I also seek to minister to them and, and meet with them there in, in their hometown and get to know their pastors if they have one or their families in a, in a better way. But pray, pray that God will bless those Bible studies. It's, uh, it's, it's really encouraging to me how many are, are, are not only using the, 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 the benefiting from the capital Bible studies uh, there at the state house, but also they'll say that they're, they're taking them home and sharing it with their spouse or they're sharing it with the, their family or maybe they're a deacon in a church and so they'll use it in a Sunday school class. So it's been really encouraging to me to see how God has blessed those Bible studies even beyond the capital. Where many are proud and they'll say, you know, I've kept every one, Pastor, and I go back and I, I refresh my memory on them. So it's been great to see God blessing that. Pray he continues to do it. When I first started, uh, lobbyists kind of chuckled at me. Well, that's nice. They laughed. <laughs> Harder than that. You know, who are you? You don't have a checkbook? You're just going to go with a Bible and think you're going to make a difference here? Well, yeah, that's, that was the calling. That was the calling. That's what I've been able to do. And it's been, uh, I, I say it humbly, it's, it's amazing. The, the lobbyists, they gather outside, you know, they'll wait hours sometimes to meet with a representative or senator. And, uh, and I come by without an appointment and, hey, pastor, come on in, let's talk. I got some things I want to share with you. So God, by his grace, only he, could, only he can do that and provide those, those opportunities. So pray, you know, pray, pray that God will bless his word in our state house. And I've had the wonderful privilege. I've had several members uh, leave from the state house and go to Congress and still able to have that relationship with them up there in D.C., uh, one of which has invited me to come to the, the prayer caucus and be able to share those members. If it's a caucus, it means it's members only. So it's only for elected officials, but because of my relationship with this a member of Congress, he, he has uh, invited me to come. So, you know, be, be praying for it. There's a lot of good, so much to share. Sometimes it can be hard because you have to protect these relationships. There's this, uh, there's this trust, and so I should be really careful not to share too much information that would, that would violate that. But there's a lot of good that God is doing. Continue to pray that God would do that. So Paul... He was a man just governed by the, the vivid memory of his conversion. And so we already talked about why he would go to Rome, but, but also why, why would he go to Spain? Well, Spain had a lot of political leaders. There was the orator Quintilian, there was the, uh, the, the writer Marshall, and then as I said previously, there was the statesman Seneca who resided there. Uh, you also had Roman emperors who were born there. Trajan and Hadrian were born there. So this was a, a key place for him to visit. According to Clement of Rome, he wrote in the, the first century AD, he said, Paul went to Spain and gave his testimony before the rulers. So Paul, that's why, again, that's why he's instructing Timothy. Pray for the salvation of Rome's political leaders. First and foremost, before you do anything, pray for the salvation of America's political leaders. That principle applies to us today. We should desire to see our political leaders come to know Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the, of the Word of God. If you would, turn to the book of, of, of Romans, 
for a moment. In the book of Romans, we're just going to kind of look rather quickly at, at some opening chapters and then a few verses in particular. But in Romans chapter 1, such a logically written epistle that Paul has, and, and he, the, the, the argument is so uh, tight. But here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is wanting to talk about why God's wrath is expressed universally towards all people. And it talks about all this theological perversion that occurs. Romans chapter 1, in verse 21, it talks about people becoming futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They professed themselves to be wise, and actually they were fools. Exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So it talks about all this theological perversion, and then this just leads to all this ethical chaos that you see then described in verses 24 through 32. So it just shows that humanity's psychological and sociological alienation is the result of spiritual alienation. If people aren't properly related to God, they are improperly related to others. And so that's why it says they dishonor. They dishonor themselves. They dishonor their bodies. They, they give themselves over to all kinds of degrading passions, all kinds of sexual deviation, and even all kinds of antisocial behavior. So sin is just, it, it's seen here as being something that's malignant. Sin is something that infiltrates and, and spreads. But these people here, it says in verse 32 of chapter 1, they know they're wrong, yet they continue to sin, even encouraging others to participate. They even give, it says, hearty approval to those who practice sins that are similar to their own. You can almost picture them almost having parades in the streets where they're celebrating their abominable lifestyle. Well, you might think the, the, the moral person fares better. And chapter 2 addresses that person. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. So there it says that the moral person doesn't fare any better. The immoral person, the pagan person, is under God's wrath. So is the, the, the moral person. And so that's the argument in the first 16 verses of chapter 2. Well, and then you might think, well, well, well maybe the, the religious person. Maybe the religious person fares a little bit better. But uh, no. Uh, Paul says that the, the Jew does have certain advantages, but, but even the, the, the religious person, outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, that person is also under God's condemnation. So scripture indicates this universal need of humanity for God, particularly notes how the, the immoral person, the pagan person, who, who's never heard of Christ is just as accountable to God, as is the moral person, as is the religious person who has heard of Christ. And so none of these people satisfy God's requirement of salvation. And that's why the summary of the need of all people, it's stated in one single verse. You find it there in chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. So the cure for the human condition, it's God's righteousness that's only available through faith in Jesus Christ. So all this is important because a lot of people are, are talking about, well, what, what's happening in America? America is going through a transition and it's scary for some, fearful for others. We are going through a transition, and people are wondering, you know, why? What's, what's the problem with America? Well, what would Scripture say? The problem that America is facing, it, it, it's spiritual. So if it's a spiritual problem, then what does that mean? It should be a spiritual solution. 
And that's exactly what Paul is, is arguing for here for us. It's, 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 it's dangerous if we think that we just have to get enough moral people elected to office. If we get enough moral people elected to office, then that'll place America in a, in a position where he can bless us. Do you understand that that kind of thinking is a denial of the gospel? I mean, that's what's stated here in Romans. Even the moral person is under God's condemnation. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm pro-morality. I like morality. Uh, I'm so sure you do. But, but, if, but, if, but if that's our focus, just giving people that, that, that outwardly are, are moral, but they're not regenerated, you know, that, that's not going to result in God's blessing. person has to be in right relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want to focus a little bit more attention on the opening, some of these opening verses in chapter 1, verse 14, and see how, how Paul, how, how the, this gospel ministry, how it just compelled him. He says, verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So look what Paul says here. He says he's under obligation to proclaim the gospel. You think of being a witness for Christ in that manner? That it would be just as criminal for a doctor with a cure for cancer not to share it as it is for, for us, to be silent or at least help others who are sharing that, that, that gospel message, to be partners with those who are committed to that task, like you are with, with Capital Commission. So Paul says he's under obligation to proclaim the gospel. He also says he's eager. In verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Paul had a very aggressive attitude towards his calling. He didn't accept that obligation with any kind of reluctance. He generally wanted to share the gospel with the people of Rome. So that's what I do in my role as a Georgia State minister for, for Capital Commission, is, is to have Bible studies that are delivered to every legislative office, in addition to a lot of other offices throughout the Capital community. And while I'm, I'm making those rounds, that's how I, people ask me, what are you doing? Making my rounds, uh, just like a doctor does in the hospital. That's what I'm doing. I'm just I'm making rounds and saying, how, how are you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do, great. Uh, how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? The person doesn't. Do you know my Savior? Do you have questions about the Bible study? So those are like my gospel track. That's the reason to be in those offices on a regular basis and seeing where people are spiritually. So it's not only ministering to our, our legislators, our representatives and senators, but it's ministering to their staff, uh, lobbyists, our Supreme Court justices, our Court of Appeal judges, our public service commissioners, our constitutional officers, capital security, governor's office, all kinds of individuals that are there to, to reach. I, I generally want to share the gospel with them. Those who don't believe, share my study in God's word with those who are believers so that they can be equipped for spiritual uh, service. But Paul also said, verse 16, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Paul here, he uses a, a literary device called Lydates. We, we do this all the time when we say no small problem. It's a figure of speech that we use. So Paul's expressing the idea that he's proud of the gospel, but he states the opposite of proud and the negative. He says, I'm not ashamed. So Paul is saying, I'm not intimidated by Rome's political status because he knew these people needed the gospel. 
That's, that's how I approach our officials. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm respectful, uh, I'm, I'm humble, but I'm bold. I'm bold also because I've seen a lot of individuals pass away there. And so I just, you know, I get everyday life, short. Uh, sometimes the Lord calls us when we're not expecting. Uh, and so I, I'm bold, humble, respectful, but still I'm recognizing those in positions of authority, just like Paul can say here, there's no need to be intimidated because we have the life-changing message uh, of the gospel, the wisdom of God's word that's so desperately needed in our capital communities. The, the challenge I face is I say I'm very much like a, someone who operates a lemonade stand on the side of the, the interstate. <laughs> How would you do that? How would you get people to stop and slow down? And it could get so busy. Uh, legislators will tell me, they'll, they'll say, Ron, just the, the hours, they just get earlier and earlier and later and later. And uh, it's just a real challenge for them. So how do I get them to you know, slow down for a moment? Slow down and, and let, me, let me pray for you. Let me encourage you with my study of God's word. I know I have something refreshing uh, for them, but that could be one of the, one of the challenges. So Paul says he's, he's under obligation to proclaim this gospel. He's eager, eager to preach it too. He's not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. He's going to say why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Second part of verse 16. He says, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now the word power there, that's the Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite. And, and, that, that, and that's not the meaning. That's not the meaning here. It doesn't mean to explode or explosion or anything like that. That's not what the Greek word dunamis means. It has a far more practical meaning than that sensationalized claim. The word power here in verse 16, the power of God, it, it, it means inherent ability or strength, the inherent ability to accomplish a task. We have all kinds of philosophies that are, that are out there, all kinds of ideas amongst Republicans and Democrats, libertarians, and uh, you know, what, what, what are the solutions? But recognize, according to this verse, they, 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 they all lock the power to enact those promises. That's what makes the gospel unique. What makes the gospel unique is that not only does it present God's demands, but it also gives believers the power. It gives the capacity, the strength to fulfill those commands. God never commands anything of us for which he doesn't also give his provision. That's the power of God unto salvation. So Paul says that, that, that he, is, he believed the gospel because it's, it's, it's the power of God, but also he says he believed that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The concept of, of righteousness, this comes from the Old Testament. Righteousness, it's a, it's a legal term. It's what theologians call a, a forensic term, according to the Jewish understanding. So to be righteous, it means that you're in the right. You're in the clear as far as the law is concerned. It, it doesn't describe my moral quality or yours. But it's a, it's, a, it's a legal status. This is what judges do. Judges don't impart guilt or innocence. They make a legal declaration. I legally declare this person either guilty or innocent. That's what God does with, with us. The term righteous here refers to God's declaration that a believer is in the right because we believe the gospel. We trusted Christ. But you have to clarify, this righteousness is different than human righteousness. Some people think the difference between divine and, and human righteousness is just that there's, there's more of God's. So in other words, God's salvation is added to human righteousness, 
to satisfy what's lacking, what's necessary for salvation. So, in other words, the spiritual dilemma there in that thinking is not that we lack anything to offer God, we just don't have enough to give. So, so, so in that thinking, Jason may need to combine 60% of his righteousness with 40% of God's. You know, I may need to combine 10% of my righteousness with 90% of God's righteousness. Well, that's, the Bible absolutely denies that approach. Because what Scripture reveals here is that you and I, we have absolutely nothing to offer God, regardless of how good or how religious we may be. Human righteousness is entirely unacceptable because it's entirely different in quality from the righteousness of God. So this righteousness, it says, the end of verse 17, is based entirely on faith. It's revealed from faith to faith. So a bit of a, a colloquialism here, meaning that salvation from beginning to end is by faith. It is from faith to faith. So the righteousness of God is bestowed only in response to faith. And you note the Old Testament proof text given to affirm this particular concept of righteousness. Citing Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where it declares there, the righteous shall live by faith. And that verse is really appropriate because it contains three elements already mentioned, righteousness, life, and faith, which are practically synonymous with salvation. And so this verse is based upon the truth of what God said in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it describes Abraham's experience of salvation, that he believed God, and then it was credited to him as righteousness. So, so, so that's the theme of the book of Romans. And Paul has validated that theme now with the Old Testament, and so then he can begin his argument. So, and what's the basic argument that he's making? That the human problem is spiritual. What's the problem in America today? Is it the people that are alienated? Is it the people that are estranged, that they're oppressed, they're searching for identity, they're, they're lacking wholeness? Are we not electing the right individuals? Well, typically answers to those questions will describe symptoms accurately, but not diagnose the fundamental disease. And that is, what do people need? What's the problem in America? What's the problem in the world? People needing the righteousness of God. It's what Paul can declare in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 21. He says, the world through its wisdom does not know God. He said in the very next chapter, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to them. And that person is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So you can never expect anyone, any elected official, to ever behave as God commands unless what? Unless they first believe in the author of the Scripture. There has to be a heart change. So that's the mission of Capital Commission is that mission of redeeming society by seeing hearts transformed. Changing the heart, that is the biblical means to change the nation. And so you can see this emphasis all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, Israel. Israel was to be a, a light of God's glory as a witness to all the nations. Israel was even meant to testify of God to the political leaders and Gentile nations. Jesus even showed this. Uh, through the ministries that he gave to the apostles Paul and Peter. They, they personified it in their ministries. Even, even after the end of the age, the people of God are still going to have a ministry to unbelieving rulers. So this ministry of reaching political leaders, it just permeates all of Scripture. 
That's why the psalmist can say, Psalm 119, verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. So that proposition that there exists this, this mandate to reach capital communities for Christ, it's evident in all the various ages of biblical revelation. You see it in the ministry of Old Testament Israel. You see it in the ministry of Jesus and disciples. You see it in the ministry of the apostles. God intended for, for Israel in the Old Testament to come a light to the Gentile nations. In a general sense, but more specifically, he expected his people to be a light to the leaders of those nations. That's why the Isaiah can say, prophet Isaiah, chapter 60 and verse 3, he can say, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So there you see it in the Old Testament Israel. Look at Joseph, book of Genesis. He's there to reach the Egyptian government. Daniel, able to make an impact to the Babylonian government, Medo-Persian government. What's interesting about Daniel's ministry is he didn't feel the need to condemn the government. He didn't do that. He was able to serve within the government in a unique manner, in a, in a way that it was obvious that his God was unique and eventually led to the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. But you think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he's, he's able to serve as cupbearer to the king because of, of, of that relationship. The king is grant, able to grant him permission that the Jews can return and, and, and start a, a rebuilding work of Jerusalem in, a, in the city, in the temple. That's the kind of relationship we should have with our political leaders. When, Poplar, when someone from Poplar Springs contacts a commissioner or a representative or a senator, they, they, they have an eager ear to listen because they say, I know you care about me. Those are people there. We may not always agree, but I know you care about me. What's on your mind? That's the kind of relationship versus, well, what do you want? Yeah, I saw your protest that you did outside my office, and I, and I, and I noticed the, the, our legislators do that. All these people come, and they, they protest, and they, we demand, we demand. And I, and I see the legislators as they're crossing the street from the Capitol to the legislative office building, making a mental note of those church buses, those church fans, almost like, yeah, you call me when you want something and see what kind of response you get. That's not the kind of relationship we should have. We had in the book of Acts, the religious people, they're the ones that are persecuting the apostle Paul. The political types are the ones that are protecting him, saying, you're not any harm. Let's protect them. I had that happen for me with our public service commissioners. I had a, had a lobbyist come, and, and, uh, and he said, basically, he didn't like me. He didn't like me because he says, every word out of my mouth is Jesus this and Jesus that. And uh, he didn't like that. And uh, so the commissioners, they defended me. They defended me, and they say, look, Dr. McGalkey is our friend. He volunteers his time to come here and minister to us. And uh, you want to do that? You're, you're more than free. Of course, nobody wants to do that. But I am eager. I am eager to do that, and I, and I love doing that. So throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, there's this ministry to political types, even the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, in verse 18, in Matthew 10 and verse 18, Jesus commissioned his 12 disciples, and then he tells them, Matthew 10 and verse 18, he tells them they would be brought before governors and kings for his sake as a testimony to them. So they're to give testimony of God's grace and truth to political leaders. You see this in the, in the ministry of the apostles. We've seen that in, in Paul's ministry, but you also see that in the, in the ministry of Peter. If you turn with me for a moment in, in, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 12. 1 Peter 2 and, and verse 12 says there, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles 
so that the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what's Peter doing there? Peter's exhorting his audience. He's exhorting us. Live exemplary lives amongst Gentiles for one purpose, that they may glorify God in the day of salvation, the day of visitation. So the exhortation, that's Peter's way of saying that he desired that they be saved, to see Gentiles come to know Christ. And he knows that poor conduct in the church, that's going to lead to poor testimony in the community, and that would oppose the mission to impact capital communities with the gospel. And so he says, verse 13 and 14, expanding upon this idea with respect to political leaders, says, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, the praise of those who do what is right. So here he is in a very simple and summary manner, just saying that, uh, that believers are submit to the laws that we have for the sake of the gospel witness. So, so, so again, you, you see this ministry of reaching political types, the Old Testament, see the ministry of Jesus, his apostles, but even in a time of cataclysmic activity. Mark chapter 13, verse 9, says that believers will stand before governors and kings for his sake. What, what's interesting, too, is that when the Lord establishes his kingdom on this earth, it says in 2 Timothy, you just flip to the left a little, 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 12, and it says here, 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. <laughs> That's interesting. So God's people will no longer minister to governing authorities. They'll be the kings themselves. Those who have been redeemed will be given the privilege uh, to rule the earth. So when Christ returns and his kingdom is established, he's going to grant believers the governing position similar to those who hold them today. And believers will rule with perfection. So ministry before the Lord is going to change at that time. It's going to be from one of pursuing to one of being. But still, you can see God's wholehearted interest in government leaders. That's going to remain as integral even throughout the Lord's kingdom. So the Great Commission includes a very specific, very strategic emphasis of reaching political leaders throughout the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just go into all the world and make disciples of the people. It could have said that in the Greek. It could have used the Greek word laos, disciple all the people individually. They use the Greek word ethnos. No, the nations. Actually, reach the nations. You cannot reach a nation unless you reach its leaders. So even there in the Great Commission, you see this emphasis. So that's the ministry in which I serve. Capital Commission is a, a missionary response to a mandate that we see all throughout Scripture. We recognize that God alone, he's the one who providentially installs leaders in the realm of government. But as we saw from 1 Timothy chapter 2, our Lord's desire is to make provision for our government leaders. God's desire is not only for humanity to be saved, but to have knowledge of the truth. So elected officials can, can receive that, can know God's absolute truth, because God has revealed it in Scripture. And so it's the church that is responsible then to make that message known amongst our political leaders. And so God's design is, is that we, we pray, we pray for our governing authorities. Before you do anything else, pray. Pray for your governing authorities. And then we submit to the laws that are upon us, as long as they don't violate God's law. And we also are wanting to seek to proclaim the truth of God's word to our governing authorities. And, and that requires that someone needs to proclaim that message. The uh, reverse order of Romans chapter 10 is that if we want anybody to call upon the name of the Lord, 
If we want our political leaders to call upon the name of the Lord, what has to occur? They have to believe. Again, they're, they're, they're not going to seek this word if they don't know the author. They have to believe. So we can yell at them as much as we want, or we can seek to introduce them to the author of Scripture. And so if they believe, they'll call on the Lord. But if they're going to believe, there needs to be a context for that belief. They have to hear. They have to know what, what's being declared in the book of Romans, that there's no salvation except in Christ and Christ alone by grace through faith. But that means somebody's got to preach. That's what Capital Commission is committed to doing. That's the ministry that you support. We're committed to the preaching, to the proclamation. You may ne- never visit the state house, but you have a voice there as you send Capital Commission, as you send me. And that's what's needed. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. There has to be someone sending someone who will preach so that they'll hear, they'll believe, and they'll call upon the name of the Lord. That's the strategic relationship that we have with one another. So thank you for your partnership, and thank you for let me encourage you from God's word that God does care for our government. He has a plan and a purpose for it. And uh, thank you for supporting the ministry of Capital Commission. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for the manifestation of your righteousness at the cross of Calvary. It's there that Christ died and paid the penalty for the sins of all people, whoever lived or ever will live. And so as a result, those of us who believe we can be justified, and you are, your wrath is propitiated. You are satisfied. You've acted in a manner consistent with your character. So I pray that you would bless and empower Poplar Springs to reach this area and beyond with the gospel. Equip the saints here with all that's needed for life and for godliness, by your grace and for your glory. Amen.